in the spiritual classic Abandonment to Divine Providence by Jean-Pierre de Cassade, we read that there is no peace except in submission to the divine will and action in our life. He says, The soul that does not attach itself solely to the will of God will find neither satisfaction nor sanctification in any other means. If that which God himself chooses for you does not content you, for whom do you expect to obtain what you desire? If you are disgusted with the meat prepared for you by the divine will itself, what food would not be insipid to so depraved a taste? No soul can be really nourished, fortified, purified, enriched, and sanctified, except in fulfilling the duties of the present moment. What more would you have? As in this, you can find all good. Why seek it anywhere else? Do you know better than God? As he ordains it thus, why do you desire it differently? Can his wisdom and goodness be deceived? Do you imagine you will find peace in resisting the Almighty? Is it not, on the contrary, this resistance, which too often continue without owning it, even to ourselves, which is the cause of all our troubles? It is only just, therefore, that the soul that is dissatisfied with the divine action for each present moment should be punished by being unable to find happiness in anything else. There is, in fact, nothing really good that does not emanate from the ordinance of God. And nothing, however good in itself, can be better adapted for the sanctification of the soul and the attainment of peace. In this talk, we want to enter further into the process. How do I grow in the divine will? How do I go about living in this gift of the divine will? Again, there are no special formulas, magic procedures, or hidden secrets. Calling it a gift means exactly that. It is a gift of God. And therefore, as I said, the first step is simply to desire it and ask for it. The gift will be given based on the humble, pure, sincere receptivity. We must begin and end by earnestly asking with trust that God bestow upon us the greatest union with him possible. We can and should make that our prayer. However, God himself cannot give the gift of his will if we're still clinging to our own wills. Hence, the next step after desiring and asking is the need for renunciation of the self-will. The total renunciation of the self-will is taught throughout the Catholic tradition, recognizing that we're in a spiritual battle, that we have to fight each moment of every day. It involves a combination of practicing the virtues, a spirit of constant prayer, absolute trust in providence no matter the situation, mortification of the flesh, and profound humility. Generally, I find most Catholics are pretty good at giving something up for Lent. We give up some comfort, uh, media, amusement, enjoyment, or even conversation or food or drink. But I often say that the greater Lenten penance is not the penance that I choose to do for Lent, which are all good things, The greater penances are the ones I didn't choose. 
like those people who annoy and irritate me. Those moments each day when I have to practice patience and resignation. Every time the phone or the doorbell rings, right? Whenever something is not the way I want it or how I would want it. In some, whenever I don't get what I want, my will, my way. Those are the moments I have to renounce my self-will. St. Alphonsus Liguori relates a story about an abbot who was investigating a monk who had attained such sanctity that the mere touch of his garments healed the sick. Marveling at these deeds, since his life was no more exemplary than the lives of the other monks, the superior asked him one day what was the cause of these miracles. The monk replied that he too was mystified and was at a loss how to account for such happenings. What devotions do you practice? asked the abbot. The monk answered that there was little or nothing special that he did beyond making a great deal of willing only what God willed and that God had given him the grace of abandoning his will totally to the will of God. Prosperity does not lift me up, nor adversity cast me down, added the monk. I direct all my prayers to the end that God will, God's will may be done fully in me and by me. So the abbot queried, that raid of our enemies made against the monastery the other day in which our stores were plundered, our granaries put to the torch, and our cattle driven off, did not this misfortune cause you any resentment? No, Father, came the reply. On the contrary, I returned thanks to God, as is my custom in such circumstances, fully persuaded that God does all things or permits all things to happen for his glory and for our greater good. Thus, I am always at peace, no matter what happens. Seeing such uniformity with the will of God, the abbot no longer wondered why the monk worked so many miracles. That monk has that peace we are called to find in the divine will. But he achieved it through that complete self-renunciation, so that he was totally indifferent, whether we are rich or poor, healthy or sick. God's will be done. Thus, St. Alphonsus Liguori concludes, our petition should be not that our wishes be done, but that God's holy will should be fulfilled in us and by us. When, therefore, something adverse happens to us, let us accept it from his hands, not only patiently, but even with gladness. What greater consolation can come to a soul than to know that by patiently bearing some tribulation, it gives God the greatest pleasure in his power. Spiritual writers tell us that though the desire of certain souls to please God by their sufferings is acceptable to him, still more pleasing to him is the union with his will, so that their will is neither to rejoice nor to suffer, but to hold themselves completely amenable to his will, and they desire only that his holy will be fulfilled. Important to kind of keep in mind as we go through this talk on suffering, that God is more pleased, not with suffering, no, he is most pleased with 
union with his will. Because sometimes it doesn't mean suffering. And so if it is your will to please God and find peace in the world, unite yourself always and in all things to his divine will. Note, however, that living in the peace of the divine will is not quietism. The heresy which says one has such passivity and indifference that one doesn't even care about growing in perfection, virtue, or sanctity. Quite the opposite of that, every Christian must be thoroughly convinced that our spiritual life is a scene of constant and sometimes painful battle, a struggle against evil, temptation, and the sin that is in us, a fight to grow in prayer and virtue. The Catechism tells us in paragraph 1426, the new life received in Christian initiation has not abolished the frailty and weakness of human nature, nor the inclination to sin that traditionally, tradition calls concupiscence, which remain, remains in the baptized, such that with the help of the grace of Christ, they may prove themselves in the struggle of Christian life. This is the struggle of conversion directed toward holiness and eternal life to which the Lord never ceases to call us. This combat is inevitable. And fought properly, it becomes the place of our purification, our spiritual growth, where we learn to see and renounce our self-will and experience God in his infinite mercy. To fight this spiritual combat, we first must have absolute certainty that the victory is already won because of what we are preparing to celebrate, our Lord's death and resurrection. Therefore, we do not fight with our own strength, but with that of the Lord. Our principal weapon is not our natural gift or strength of will, as if I can just hang on long enough and fight hard enough. No, our weapon is faith. A total adhesion to Christ, so that even in the worst moments, I can abandon myself to him with confidence. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things in him who strengthens me. This is how we can find peace even in the midst of the fight. Because if we fight with our own strength, we're going to become quickly exhausted. But not when we battle with the strength of God. My grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in weakness. Included with our renunciation of the self-will is the need to avoid sin. This means, of course, following the commandments, no matter our temptations, desires, inclinations, or whatever else. But to be successful in avoiding sin, there must also be mortification of the flesh. Why? Because a spiritual cream puff will always do the self-will. <laughs> Laxity and lenience in the spiritual life will never succeed. The fallen aspect of our nature hates the growth in the spiritual life. And so it makes sure we always have plenty of excuses why we're not strengthened by discipline. 
And so please do not think you've made great progress in your spiritual life because you were able to have two small meals and one big meal on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. St. Jose Maria Escriva said that if we don't do some act of mortification at every single meal, then we're eating like pagans who completely indulge their appetites. And so even those small acts of denying one of our little appetites, those small sufferings willingly accepted each day, prepare us for the bigger ones, like temptation to sin when they come. Fasting from food is one of these very effective forms of mortification. Of course, it's not the only one, but it's kind of tried and true. And I would say this could easily be part of our weekly routine, whatever form and to whatever extent you feel called um, to do in your discernment. For example, remember how the church calls us to do some penance every single Friday of the year, not just during Lent. And so whether that's abstinence, fasting, or some other small but consistent mortifications. And if you're able, don't tell anyone, lest we try to brag about it. In this way, we work slowly but surely, which is often the best way at canceling the self-will. But perhaps the thing that most distinguishes the renunciation of our own wills is how we respond to those crosses that are already a part of our lives. As I said, during Lent, we'll choose to do penance and engage in bodily mortifications. But what about the things we didn't choose? None of us can escape all suffering. The cross will come. The question is, what are you going to do with that suffering? Do I dwell on how annoyed I am by it? And whatever and whoever caused it? Do I lament and complain about it to everybody I meet? Do I endlessly ponder how I could have avoided it? Or try to ensure I at least won't have to feel it again? Do I stop at nothing to try and get rid of it? These are attitudes that do not conform to God's will or the necessary trust we must have in those moments of suffering. Because I'm sure you all know how suffering can easily push us into envy, Bitterness, hatred, isolation, discouragement. If we forget that God permits this trial to purify our love and make us more compassionate. If you would bring that suffering to the Lord, unite it with God and his will. Know that he permits you to undergo a share with Christ's passion. And meditate on his sufferings. Then you can powerfully inflame your love and desires. St. Faustina described in her diary. I often felt the passion of the Lord Jesus in my body. But only for a short time. 
And I rejoiced in it because Jesus wanted it so. These sufferings set my soul afire with love for God and for immortal souls. Love endures everything. Love is stronger than death. Love fears nothing. And so here we have to talk about what is called redemptive suffering. To do so, I have an example I like. You arrive at a a busy event, like, say, a concert. And you get there early enough to reserve for yourself a nice, comfortable seat. And as the event begins, you see an elderly woman struggling to remain standing in the aisle because there's no seats left. Which is going to cause you more suffering? To keep your seat and see her in pain as you sit comfortably throughout the concert? Or to take her place and bear the discomfort of standing during the event, but knowing that you've actually there is a little bit less pain and suffering in total, because it's not too hard for me to stand, assuming you're a young, healthy person. This is how we suffer redemptively. Really, a young, healthy man really must give up his seat for that struggling elderly woman. It's not a matter of discernment, but it does require love. And so the amount, total amount of suffering is reduced. As I read through the Hours of the Passions, I think they contain some profound truths about redemptive suffering on our part. We learn that it's really about simply being close to Jesus in his suffering and his passion. It's not primarily about experiencing a certain degree of pain, as if we're supposed to intentionally go about making our lives miserable and that effort to be victim souls which amounts to no more than masochism. Rather, we are to be utterly close to Jesus, to meditate upon his sufferings so that we can be with him in them. Something we do, especially by being with him as long as we can in adoration of the Eucharist. Because All of his acts, including those of his passion, are present in the Eucharist. And to be completely open to whatever he may give us. So long as that openness is genuine and sincere, it itself can be just as meritorious as someone who undergoes great suffering. Like someone who has that miraculous stigmata and actually shares in the passion of Christ. But remember where we started. That openness 
and doing of God's will is even more meritorious than that. Particularly if it's just some smaller suffering that he wants us to bear with gratitude, joy, love, and patience. Here we have the mysterious words of St. Paul in Colossians 1.24, which would sound almost like blasphemy if they weren't part of sacred scripture. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. What is lacking in Christ's sufferings during the Passion? Absolutely nothing. Even just one single drop of his blood shed in sacrifice for the world was sufficient to cancel the sins of all time and redeem every soul for all eternity. So what is Paul talking about? That something is lacking, that he needs to rejoice in offering his sufferings. What is lacking is our reception of this incredible gift. Christ has won all of these graces for us. But so many have failed to accept and receive them. So many fail to believe in Christ, to know his perfect suffering that was done for me. Christ's suffering is perfect, but what is not perfect are the members of the church who still sin and fail. And so there's no contradiction between saying that Jesus died for sins once and for all, and that sacrifice is complete and perfect, and saying that we fill up what is lacking in Christ's sufferings for the church. Because now our sufferings have a meaning because they are encompassed by that perfect suffering of Jesus. Jesus' afflictions enable us to suffer affliction in him. And thereby to make sure these graces he has won are applied and received. Christ's death is sufficient for all time, but time goes on. And until the end of time, the Spirit wants to inscribe Christ's once sufficient death into more and more lives. The Spirit will work his way into the flesh of countless future disciples to mold them into the shape of a cross. What is lacking in Christ's affliction is now filled up as believers suffer in Jesus and for his church. And so we contemplate Jesus' sufferings so that they can be incorporated into us. Lent especially focuses our attention on this, on the suffering and death of Jesus, especially as we enter now into Palm Sunday and Holy Week. But this is not just as something we gaze at from a safe distance, as if we're just observing as the spectator. No, it's an annual invitation to enter in and share 
in Christ's passion, to be with him in it. I think Father Young was reading the introduction that St. Hannibal wrote to the Hours of the Passion about this same thing. Archbishop Fulton Sheen wrote, the greatest tragedy of the world is not what people suffer, but how much they miss when they suffer. Nothing is quite as depressing as wasted pain, agony without an ultimate meaning and purpose. Only on Calvary, only through the cross of Christ, do we learn that suffering can have meaning. That suffering has now been redeemed. That suffering can now be a means to draw us out of our superficiality and egocentricity. And indeed, it helps transform how we define ourselves from uncaring to caring, from self-centered to other-centered, from worshiping self to worshiping God. Suffering is part of growing in our own compassion and self-gift, and now united with Christ can be transformed into an act of self-sacrifice for the benefit of all. I think of how in the 13th hour of the Passion at 5 a.m., when Louisa visits Jesus in prison and describes him as a prisoner of love with his sacred face bruised, swollen, and bleeding, his hands bound so tightly he could not even clean the blood from his face. At that moment, does Louisa find Christ busy dwelling on his pain and sorrows? Are his thoughts occupied with his own situation and suffering? No, to her amazement, at that moment, Jesus is thinking only about glorifying the Father. She hears Jesus give thanks to the Father for the sufferings he has given him so that he can give all souls the blessings he possesses. This is redemptive suffering. Does that Share in the cross. That moment of suffering caused me only to turn in and think of myself. Woe is me. Or does it remind me that this tiny sliver of the cross that Jesus is sharing with me is actually a gift of being closer to him. A gift in sharing in his passion. A gift I can offer for the good of souls. At the 2016 World Youth Day in Poland, Pope Francis challenged the millions of young people there. In the face of evil, suffering, and sin, the only response possible for a disciple of Jesus is the gift of self, even of one's own life. The answer to suffering has been given by God to man in the cross of Jesus Christ. Christ's own suffering and death has immense, immeasurable value and purpose, giving himself completely even unto death, handing over his spirit out of obedience to the Father's will. 
And now our suffering also has value and purpose by sharing in the redemptive suffering of Christ. As Archbishop Sheen said, don't let that suffering be wasted. The Christian must be unhesitant to cast aside anything necessary to attain the kingdom of God. And suffering is a gift that enables us to focus, not on the things of this world which fail us, but on the new life in Christ that awaits believers. Since life's road will pass by the way of Calvary for each and every one of us, this journey of love ultimately entails that we strip ourselves of all that keeps us from God and his will. Meditating on Christ's passion and death through devotions like the Stations of the Cross or praying with Louisa's Hours of the Passion helps us to realize that life's sufferings can be joined to Christ's sufferings. And even more, they can be transformed through the power of love from something destructive into something life-giving. Now, if you're like me, about now all this talk about suffering sounds rather scary. I mean, I have trouble offering up a stubbed toe or the common cold without complaining. Am I called to experience the same physical and moral pains that Jesus did in his crucifixion? Louisa writes so frequently about our acts making reparation for the sins of others, and particularly about consoling Jesus in his agony and suffering. What does that mean? To address this idea of consoling Jesus in his passion on the cross, it's a thought that's been especially developed by Father Michael Gately, who I'm some of you I'm sure are familiar with. Indeed, he has an entire book named Consoling the Heart of Jesus. And I have to admit, the first time I read it, I didn't really get it. It was actually in a different book of his, The 33 Days to Merciful Love, where Father Gately examines the teaching of divine mercy, especially as revealed in the diary of St. Faustina. And throughout that whole book, 33 Days to Merciful Love, he examines how to make an offering of merciful love in imitation of St. Therese of Lisieux. And there he first looks at what consoling the heart of Jesus is not. And he uses the example of Sister Marie of Jesus, who was a Carmelite who lived at the same time as St. Therese of Lisieux, but quite unlike St. Therese. Sister Marie of Jesus offered herself as a victim's soul to God's justice. And some of her final words, which she offered in the midst of her dying agony, was, I am bearing the harshness of divine justice, divine justice, divine justice. A lot of us were probably taught by someone like Sister Marie of divine justice. If you were raised with that idea that every time you sin, it's like you're driving a nail into Jesus' hand. You're causing him to suffer more. And therefore, the only way to acquire merit for heaven was to take and offer painful suffering in Jesus' place. Basically, it was a practice 
especially at that time, to make a sort of deal with the Lord that said, Lord, give me all the punishment that is due to sinners. Then give to those sinners the blessings I would normally receive for being faithful to you. And perhaps surprisingly or not, the Lord would take people up on such an offer. They might come down with a great illness or have some terrible suffering and an agonizing death. Again, the example, even in many canonized saints and other mystics who have received the stigmata, because they so profoundly shared in and imitated and identified with the passion of Christ. And of course, we have this also in the life of the servant of God, Louisa Picaretta, who was bedridden for over 60 years as her way of being nailed to the cross with Jesus. Yet St. Therese was not attracted to such an offer to be a victim of divine justice. For her, that could lead to approaching God from a point of fear. And she wanted to know him in love, not fear. She desired to avoid sin out of love, not out of fear of causing him pain and driving nails into the hands of Jesus. Thus, Therese chose to contemplate the infinite mercy God has granted. She chose to adore him for his divine perfections. And since God knows me perfectly, he takes into account my weak and frail nature and knows I cannot possibly withstand the harshness of divine justice my own sins deserve, much less the sins of someone else. Instead, Therese discovered a way of being a spiritual victim that's based on mercy, not justice, love, not fear, tenderness, not severity, a generosity that sets souls on fire with love. She realized that if God accepts the offer of some souls to be objects of his justice, so too he also needs souls to be objects of his merciful love. Louisa recognizes this as well. Too often, God's love is not known or is rejected. Those hearts who God seeks to lavish his love upon instead turn to creatures or possessions and seek happiness in something other than God. And they end up being miserable instead of throwing themselves into the arms of God and accepting his infinite love. So thus Therese asked, is this love of God that he wanted to give but is rejected just going to remain closed up in his heart? Is it wasted? Therese answers with a beautiful prayer. It seems to me that you were to find souls offering themselves as victims of Holocaust to your love, that you would be happy not to hold back the waves of infinite tenderness within you. If your justice loves to release itself, how much more does your merciful love desire to set souls on fire? Oh, Jesus, let me be this happy victim. Consume your holocaust with the fire of your divine love. Now we can maybe see what compassionating, as Father Young puts it, or consoling the heart of Jesus means. What is the greatest pain in Jesus' heart? 
is the love Jesus wants to give. He wants to pour out. And his greatest pain is when that love is refused or rejected. Is that love going to be lost or remain closed in his heart? Not according to St. Therese, if there's someone willing to receive it, someone willing to have pity on Jesus and console his heart by letting him pour out into their soul that love that others have rejected. If you make such an offering, does Jesus pour out waves of infinite justice or infinite harshness? No, says St. Therese, waves of infinite tenderness within you. Here is how our Lord described it speaking to St. Faustina in her diary. I desire to bestow my graces upon souls, but they do not want to accept them. You at least come to me as often as possible and take these graces they do not want to accept. In this way, you will console my heart. In the fourth hour of the Passion, the Eucharistic Supper at 8 p.m., Louisa hears Jesus say how in instituting the Eucharist, he's working to form chains of love. As souls come to me, I bind them to my heart. But do you know what they do to me? They wriggle free by force, shattering my loving chains. And since these chains are linked to my heart, I am tortured. This grieves me so much as to make me faint and rave. Seeing how Jesus is hurt by this love that is rejected leads Louisa to offer a prayer. How much compassion I feel for you, O Jesus. I pray you to chain my heart with these chains broken by them in order to give you my return of love in their place. There is so much indifference, so much ingratitude and forgetfulness, so much pain in Jesus' heart because his love is not accepted, because these chains of love are broken. Thus Jesus tells St. Faustina, I am looking for souls who would like to receive my grace. If that makes sense, then I think the message of Louisa to do acts of reparation and console the heart of Jesus doesn't sound quite so scary. After all, who wouldn't want to be such a victim where I can console Jesus simply by accepting all the rejected mercy and love that burns in his heart? Of course I want those waves of infinite tenderness to pour into my soul. So what's the catch? There's got to be a catch. What is this going to cost me? Clearly there's a catch to being a victim and offering to divine justice. Lots of suffering. Yikes. So what's the catch if I join Therese and Faustina in making an offering of myself to merciful love? The difference is like that of the suffering of Jesus compared to the suffering of Mary. On the cross, Jesus took upon himself the punishment due to sinners to satisfy divine justice and underwent great physical suffering. But the suffering of Mary at the foot of the cross 
was the suffering of love. She suffered because she loved her son so much. Her suffering was one of compassion, which literally from the Latin, to suffer with someone, to share in the passion. This is who we are supposed to be as Christians. Our hearts are supposed to be merciful. We're supposed to be moved by compassion at the suffering of others. But unfortunately, due to sin, our hearts are often hardened, less compassionate, less merciful. So this is the catch. If we open our hearts to receive the merciful love Jesus longs to pour out on sinners, but they've rejected then Jesus' tender mercy is going to come rushing into our hardened hearts. It's going to be purifying them, softening them, making us more compassionate, loving, and sensitive. If we are consoling the heart of Jesus, if we offer to receive his merciful love, we have to be ready for the side effect. Our hearts are going to be more deeply moved by the sufferings of others. I can no longer be indifferent towards the pain and suffering of my neighbor. I will be moved to be more generous towards others. In short, Jesus will make my heart more like his. Hopefully now you can see why Our Lady of Fatima called for Holy Communion to be an act of reparation for sin. And Archbishop Sheen says adoration of the Eucharist is an act of reparation. What are we doing in Holy Communion but receiving the very love of Jesus in his body and blood poured out in love for sinners? And what are we doing in our time in adoration except giving our reverence, our love, our faith, our adoration towards the Eucharistic presence of Jesus all acts of receiving the love that is so often rejected. These are acts which console his heart. But be prepared for the side effect. Spending time in adoration and offering our holy communions as acts of receiving his love are going to cause us to become more loving, more generous, more compassionate, more sacrificial, more like the hearts of Jesus and Mary. And this, by the way, is another way to help us now begin the renunciation of our own self-will. To just simply be more aware of those around us. Rather than just focusing on the plans I have made, I almost develop a preferential option for the opinions and preferences of others in such a way that I can be docile then to the workings of the Holy Spirit. That when that phone or doorbell rings, I don't see it as something taking away from my time, something interrupting my plans. Rather, I can know and rejoice in the fact this is exactly God's will for me in this moment to talk to this person. I also think our modern society encourages us to always be in such a rush. 
in such a way that we fail to take time to relish the moment, time to respond to the needs of those you pass by, time to reach out, witness, and evangelize, and, of course, time to pray carefully, which we cannot do in a rush. Watch for those opportunities and moments of grace that God's providence wants to shower upon your life. Now, let me answer one last objection that may arise. Isn't this being selfish? This idea of making myself an offering to merciful love. My offering to take the rejected mercy that other people didn't want. Doesn't that really seem selfish? What about all these poor people that are not getting these graces that I'm now taking? First, know that the offering is not selfish if our intention when we do it is above all to console Jesus. But second, keep in mind that these graces have already been rejected. People have already said through their words and actions they don't want them. And here Father Gately points out something I find very beautiful. Far from us taking this grace away from others, we'll actually be giving them a second chance to receive those graces. How's that? Since one of the effects of the offering to merciful love is that it makes our hearts more compassionate, we will be moved to pray even more for the conversion of sinners. You'll be moved to do even more penance for hardened sinners. You'll be moved to offer prayers and sacrifices for those people who reject the graces of mercy that we're now receiving. You will sacrifice for those who have no one to pray for them. And so that's where our prayers, offerings, and works of mercy will give others a second chance to receive this love and mercy of God. So hopefully the idea of making reparation now doesn't sound quite so scary or difficult. Now, I don't mean in any way that we should neglect the importance and power of offering penance, sacrifices, and sufferings to continue our Lenten penances and to do things like fasting and abstinence, even when it's not Lent. And if you're like me, sometimes my fasting needs to take other forms besides just food, like fasting from the internet, cell phone, Netflix, or always watching the news. But now reparation can be more than just doing acts of penance. Every act of adoration, praise, or thanks for those who don't adore, some act of faith or trust for those who don't believe, an act of love for those who failed to love. When it comes to doing large mortifications, penances, and sacrifices, care must be taken. God needs victim souls, yes. And we should indeed offer ourselves as these. But consider that a sacrifice which is more holy and pleasing in God's sight is the one that in fact creates less suffering than the one that creates more suffering. Because it's always the sacrifice that is united with his will that is most holy and pleasing.
This simple truth was demonstrated throughout Louisa's life, in which her greatest penances were not the suffering she wished to undertake for Jesus, but the many things she did under holy obedience, to which all her life was submitted, because she realized this was God's will. For example, we've heard how it was such a great penance for her to write, which she did so only because of the obedience to her spiritual directors, or how she had to try to eat something every day because it was ordered by the bishop. If you do feel called to do a more severe form of mortification, we use discernment to test if we're doing it out of some sense of external imposition, like I think this is something I have to do, rather out of a sense of internal attraction, that this is a holy desire God has put in my heart. I'm going to talk more on discernment tomorrow. But one way is always to run such decisions by a confessor or spiritual director and abide by their advice. And so as we enter into a time of adoration this afternoon and evening, let our adoration of the Eucharist be a remembrance of who Jesus is and everything he has done for us. That bread and wine, which has truly become his body and blood, make present his death on the cross and all the acts of his passion. And he invites us now to enter into the deepest intimacy with him. He wants to pour out his self-giving love upon us. And if that were not enough, he remains in our churches, in our tabernacles, always waiting for us in this sacramental love. He waits for us so that we will always have him near. So we will always have a friend, even if everyone else has abandoned us. The Eucharist is the perfect lesson in God's school of trust. How can we fear such a good and gracious God? How can we not love and trust him, even in the midst of life's sufferings? Jesus I trust in you. Jesus, I trust in you. Jesus, I trust in you. To give to you, I give all my adoration, my love, my faith, and my trust. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.